This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. From Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. As many of you uh, know, Trisha and I moved to Orlando about five years ago, and um, New City started about four years ago. Prior to moving here, I was an associate pastor uh, at a church in Lakeland for about five years. And in Lakeland, God was very kind and very gracious to me. He did a lot of uh, uh, transforming uh, significant work in my life. Uh, several elders poured themselves and their hearts and the gospel into me uh, in really generous ways in that time. I was mentored and discipled in character and theology and ministry. One man in particular, he poured into me in very uh, generous and significant uh, ways. Um, in his training of me, in his teaching of me, in his counseling of me, uh, in all the realms I've already mentioned, we discussed six words over and over and over. Six words were chewed upon and thought about and prayed through at least 10 times more than any other six words. I dare say 100 times more than any other six words. Do nothing Gain everything, give anything. Do nothing, gain everything, uh, give anything. Of course, this is Christianity. This is the gospel. Uh, these six words are the message of the Bible. It is the story of Jesus. Christians do nothing. Christians gain everything. Christians give anything. Followers of Jesus do nothing to earn God's deliverance and God's delight. Followers of Jesus in God's salvation gain everything worth having in this life and the next. And because they do nothing to gain everything, followers of Jesus increasingly give anything so that others might do nothing and gain everything. Now the world, as we know, and the religions of the world, both present and historic, teach this. They teach that you do something or you have to be willing to give anything in order to gain everything. And every other historic world religion, works, achievement, behavior, merit, precedes relationship with God, the blessing of God, and salvation. But in the gospel, you do nothing, you gain everything, and then you give Anything. When I would get sideways, when I would turn from the path, when I would get confused, um, when I would feel lost, when I would struggle, when I would lack joy and confidence, whenever I was living in sin, my mentor and I would sit down and we would together trace my current state back to a lack of understanding or a disbelief or a refusal to stand up in the truths of the gospel explained in those six words. When I would fall yet again into habitual addiction and sin and become overwhelmed with shame and guilt and feelings of despair and disqualification, we would consider how I was not standing up in and reveling in and believing the do-nothing reality of the gospel. 
when I felt pride over character growth or pride over ministry success, we'd begin to, I would, I'd begin to look down on others. I would begin to judge others. I would begin to think I was better than others. And again, I lost touch of the do nothing reality of the gospel. My growth and any fruit and ministry did not make me any more special or valuable in the eyes of God. When I would feel anxious about my life or when I would feel envious about someone else's life, we would reflect together on how this often flowed from not believing and not being grateful for the fact that I had already gained everything worth having in Jesus Christ. When I would act selfishly, self-centeredly, willfully, presumptively, lazily, when I would think and act and speak as if my life were my own, I could do with it whatever I wanted. Whenever I wanted, we'd sit down and we'd ground ourselves in the repeated biblical teaching that those who have truly come in touch with the do nothing and gain everything realities of the gospel increasingly give anything so that others can do nothing and gain everything. So, The prescript this morning in the book of Philippians is our text. About 10 years before writing this letter, this uh, letter to the church uh, in Philippi, this church was planted by Paul and Timothy. The the account of that is given in uh, in Acts chapter 16. At this point, 10 years later, the, the church at Philippi is mature, it's growing, it's a rather healthy church compared to those churches uh, around it at the time. But as we're going to see in the coming weeks, there was still a growth that needed to happen. There was still a better understanding of things that needed to come about. They had some learning and some growing to do. And I would submit to you that in this greeting, these first two verses, Paul teaches and he reminds the Philippians that in Christ Jesus, they do nothing and they gain everything and they give anything. Everything else in the book flows from these six words. And so while the biblical flow and while the experience in our life is, as I've said this morning, we're going to actually uh, take uh, these three a little out of order. I first want to talk about gaining everything and look at the biblical word peace. I want to talk about doing nothing. Look at the biblical word grace. And I want to talk about giving anything. What does it mean to be a servant of Christ Jesus? So if you're ready, here we go. First, we gain everything worth having in this life and the next. Paul, to the saints in Philippi, peace from God. When we read and hear peace, we think of a word that's useful in a variety of settings. Uh, Peace or the ceasing of war, the absence of war between countries or peoples. Peace or the reconciliation or friendship between two individuals. Peace or the internal rest or tranquility of the soul. So our word for peace is complex and it's multifaceted. And in a lot of ways, it's a lot like the biblical word for peace. But the Bible's use of peace goes way beyond our understanding. Think about it like this. For us, uh, peace is a word that can describe many things. But in the Bible, peace is one thing that has many ramifications on many levels of life and many aspects of life. Look back at what Paul actually says in verse 2. He doesn't say grace to you and peace with God. That would be us using the word to state one of the many things it can mean. He actually says peace from God. To be sure, peace from God includes peace with God, 
but it means, oh, so much more. If there's one consistent word in the Bible for everything we gain in salvation, it's peace. The dominant Old Testament word for peace and the New Testament word for peace both mean, at the most basic level, I mean this, connectedness, order, fit, integrity, integrated. Peace is a connectedness or a relationship that brings harmony and flourishing and fruitfulness. So the biblical ideal of peace is for every aspect of our lives to be connected, ordered rightly, lined up, integrated, so that every relationship and every realm of our lives can grow and flourish and blossom and be fruitful. The Bible talks about peace on four realms in our relationship with God, our relationship to ourselves, our relationship with other humans, and in our relationship to nature. Peace, from a biblical perspective, is a word that describes life beyond our wildest imaginations. In Christ, we gain everything. Now, peace, because it's the result of the salvation we have in Christ, is spoken of in the Bible just like our salvation. It's spoken of as past, present, and future. The Bible talks about the fact that we've been given peace. The Bible talks about the fact that we receive peace. And the Bible speaks to a day when we will live in utter peace. When Paul says peace from God, he's giving them a declaration. That's the past. He's giving them a prayer. That's the present. And he's giving them a promise about the future. So just think about these four realms of peace. This is by far the most theoretical part of the sermon, so stay with me. It'll get more interesting for sure. One day when Jesus returns, we will bask in and enjoy and live out utter peace forever. We will experience an ordered, connected, uninhibited, flourishing relationship with God. Paul, Paul says, peace from God the Father. The first and foundational aspect of peace is that God delights in you and me as Christians to the extent that he delighted in Jesus. Because we're saints in Jesus, holy in Jesus, God delights in us in the same way he did his son. In heaven, we'll experience that delight and that relationship fully. Second, when Jesus returns, our relationship with ourself at the level of our soul will be connected and whole and peaceful. Paul speaks of internal peace in chapter four as the opposite of anxiety and worry. In the new heaven and the new earth will be anxiety free, will be filled to overflowing with rest and peace and freedom and joy. Third, another layer of biblical peace is peace with others, individually and nationally. When the, when the Prince of Peace returns, there will be no broken relationships, no bitterness, no envy, no lack of forgiveness, no sinning against one another. Finally, when utter shalom and peace comes down from heaven with Jesus, we will live in an ordered, flourishing relationship with nature. No illness, no disease, no violence, no harm, nor death in the natural realm. Do you remember when Jesus heals people, oftentimes in the gospel, in his life, when he brings a little bit of heaven to earth, when he says goodbye to them, he says, go in peace. He's like, this is a taste of peace. We're gonna read in Luke this week in CBR of the disciples being scared to death in the middle of hurricane force winds and Jesus is asleep and they wake him up and it's gonna tell us in Luke that he rebuked the storm. You know what he says to the storm? It tells us in Mark chapter four, he says, he commands peace, be 
still. This is what it's like in peace. In Jesus, we gain everything worth having in this life and the next. And you say to me, that's great about the future, but I'd like to have some peace now. Can you give me some peace for today? I have a little riddle for you. I don't have much time to explain it. I want you to chew on it this week. Uh, It's a proverb, maybe. It's not really a riddle. You ready? Peace in relationship one, you already have. Peace in relationship four, you don't yet have. Peace in relationships two and three will grow and increase to the extent that you believe what I said about one and four. Peace with the Father, you've already got it. Romans 5 says that justified in Christ Jesus, we have peace with God. Romans 5, Paul says, stand up in the grace that's already yours. Relationship four, peace with nature, you don't have it. We're supposed to work towards it, but it's safest to say that we won't have it until Jesus returns. He says in Romans, Paul says, creation groans waiting for Jesus to come back at the redemption of the saints. But peace with yourself and peace with others, that actually increases here and now to the extent that you believe that you're at peace with God and that one day you'll be at peace with nature. See, all internal anxiety is an unbelief in the peace you have with God. And all broken relationships on one level is a not living out the peace paradigm God gives us in the gospel. And so yes, peace you have. Yes, peace is increasing. And yes, peace will be utterly and completely full when Jesus returns. So that's gain everything. I had to say it quickly. I had to say it in some fashion uh, without intriguing you much because it's in essence everything you get in Christ is wrapped up in the word peace. It's do nothing, gain everything, give anything. What comes before peace in our text? What comes first? Grace. So now, number two, do nothing. This is the greeting of grace and peace. It's not only Paul's favorite greeting in his letters, it's the favorite greeting of Peter and Jude and John and the prescripts of their letters. If peace is the sum total of all blessings, spiritual and temporal, then grace is the source from which they come. Listen to this definition of grace by one commentator. Grace is God adopting an attitude of all sufficient favor towards helpless and merciless sinners. It's God acting in line with that attitude and God coming to sinners in free, unprovoked love to give them the opposite of what they deserve. Again, every other historic world religion teaches you this. Do something or be willing to give anything in order to gain everything. I like to uh, illustrate it this way. If you think of, I'm gonna mix some metaphors here. I'm gonna mix a few historic genres. But if you think of God's peace and salvation and the blessed life as, uh, as an amazing banquet or party, uh, and if you think of this banquet or party inside a beautiful castle, this is where I start to mix metaphors, and if you think of this banquet or party in this beautiful castle with God himself in the VIP room uh, sitting at the place of honor and at the head table, if that's peace, world religion thinks of it this way. I do something to get into the party and God gives me a better seat than I deserve. God will give me more than I deserve, but I have to get into the party by doing something. Next, most Christians erroneously think about it like this. 
Jesus gets me into the party, but being able to stay at the party and where I sit at the party is, is ultimately up to me and my behavior and my works. In other words, Christians functionally live this way using our three phrases. I do nothing to get in, but I have to be willing to give anything in order to truly gain everything. If I want to truly be close to God and dear to his heart, I have to give anything. But the Bible says, the gospel says this, Jesus not only gets you into the party, but he gives you his place with the Father in the Father's heart at the party. The question is why? Because when he died for our sin in our place, what was his place? Was he just in the party? Was he simply in the room? Was he only close to the head table? Or when he went to the cross to take our sin, was he right next to the Father, deep and dear in the Father's heart? The gospel says, do nothing, gain everything, give anything. And so at this point, we're thinking, well, I guess we should just go home. It's by grace. Nobody earns it. Everybody gets it. Is that what you're saying? No. The Bible says that even though it's a gift, it has to be received. Listen to this, uh, this, this sentence. I think this is huge. The only one who receives peace are the ones who do nothing. Or said differently, those who actively embrace doing nothing gain everything. Paul's going to teach us in chapter three, we have to actively and continually count all of our doing as nothing in order to gain everything in Christ. You see, I, I actually think from a theoretical, doctrinal perspective, we love grace. But from an existential and experiential perspective, I think we hate it. Grace runs contrary to the momentum of our arrogant hearts. We hate grace because it's so humbling. It makes us so needy. It makes us so dependent for God. We hate it because we lose all grounds for boasting. We don't like it because it strips us of having any confidence in ourselves. But the gospel is this, to gain everything you have to actively embrace, you have to embrace and love and receive doing nothing. Jesus said he came for the healthy or the sick? The sick. Jesus said he came for the righteous or the sinner? The sinner. You see, I think we hate grace because it's so humbling. This is kind of Paul's point in Ephesians 2, 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this faith is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. We don't like to be robbed of our boast. In Luke 4 this week in City Bible reading, Jesus referenced Naaman. Naaman's the Syrian commander who was the only person in the ministry of Elisha to be healed of leprosy. His story is found in 2 Kings 5. But ironically, Naaman almost walked away from the miracle. He almost walked away from the cleansing. He almost walked away from the peace. 
because he was so offended that he couldn't do anything to pay for it. The Bible tells us that Naaman was this great man, this mighty man, a victorious man, a man of valor. But the text says almost parenthetically he was a leper. And so leprosy was this fatal, highly contagious, incurable uh, skin disease. And in Naaman's house, there, there was a little Israelite slave girl who served uh, Naaman's wife. And she told her mistress that Naaman uh, should certainly visit Elisha in Israel because she was convinced that Elisha could cure him of leprosy. And so to make a long story short, Naaman, uh, like rich people in our day and age, took his private plane to the Mayo Clinic. And uh, he traveled uh, to Elisha with the following... Uh, this is a good story for us rich people. It helps us understand why it's so hard to get in. Uh, he traveled uh, uh, to Elisha with the following in his hands. A letter from the dominant king of Syria. That's a networking power move. He took in his hands uh, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing. That's a move to bribe and pay. But the text says that when he showed up at Elisha's door, Elisha would not even open the door and he would not even come out of the house. And very anticlimactically, Elisha sends his servant, his messenger, and he says this to Naaman, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. Now think, why did Elisha do that? He wanted to get Naaman naked. He wanted Naaman to strip himself of his letter, of his money, of his entourage, of his armor, of his clothes, of his honor. And he wanted him to dip his dirty, sick, leprous self in the Jordan. It was brilliant. It was ironic. Elisha had him do something that essentially told him you can't do anything to earn God's love to earn God's cleansing, to earn God's salvation, to earn God's peace. And you know what Naaman said? Cool. I love the doctrine of grace alone. Grace is cool, baby. That sounds wonderful. I'm going to do that. No, absolutely not. The text says he was livid and enraged. He said, look, behold, I thought Elisha would surely come out to me and he would stand in front of me and he would make a commotion over me and he would cure me. Not only that, if he's gonna pick a river for me to dunk myself in seven times, isn't there a better, sexier, cleaner, nicer river in Damascus? And Naaman walked away in rage, walked away from the cleansing of God, so offended by the do-nothing nature of the gospel. If it wasn't for a servant convincing him to follow Elisha's instructions, Naaman would have died from leprosy. Upon being cleansed, Naaman goes back to Elisha. He knocks on the door again and he tries again to pay him for the cleansing. And again, Elisha refused. He sent him on his way. And do you know what he said to Naaman? Verse 19, 2 Kings 5. Go in peace. You can't buy Jesus' peace. The great hymn, Rock of Ages, says it best. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die.
in the gospel, you have to actively embrace doing nothing to gain everything, grace and peace. But this is quite tricky. Because again, doctrinally and theologically, we enjoy this. So the question becomes, how do we practically and experientially and existentially hate it? And so for me, for example, I know that I don't understand it. I know that I don't believe it. I know that I'm not willing to stand up in it when the following things happen. When someone tells me that God is wild about me because of Jesus, and I don't believe it, and I don't rejoice in it because of what I've done in private, yet again, I know I don't believe the do-nothing nature of the gospel. When I teach with a condemning tone trying to compel people to obey, I know I don't believe the do-nothing nature of the gospel. When I feel better than others or self-righteous towards others because the quality and the duration of my CBR and private devotion time, I know I'm not believing the do-nothing nature of the gospel. When I'm uptight and anxious and constrained and trying to figure out yet another grace-based sermon, there's an amazing irony there. The gospel produces freedom and joy and peace except for Saturdays and me. I know yet again, I've begun to believe that I have to bring something to the table to gain everything. Last one, I know that I am in essence, and by the way, you're gonna have to come up with your own. You can't just steal mine. You have to think about this. Don't go off stealing my examples. These are not your examples. These are my examples. When I get angry with myself for making simple mistakes when nobody's watching. This morning, early, I dropped a spoon. It barely made a noise. And I said to myself, and I heard myself say out loud to myself, you blanking idiot. That's sick. That's really sick. How do I know that I still believe inside of me that I have to do something to gain everything because I cuss myself when I make a simple mistake? That's gross. Again, you'll have to come up with your own examples. You can't steal mine. But lastly, this morning, give anything. Now, if you're new to Christianity or just recently coming back to Christianity or if you're investigating Christianity, this next point is gonna be very confusing. I want you to listen very closely. When you go from do nothing on one side of the gain everything to give anything on the other side, it gets a little bit confusing. And if you're like me, when I watch a mature Christian, when I watch a gospel mature Christian, when I watch their life and I see their sacrifice and I see their obedience, and I tend to think this, and I think you think this with me, God must really like them. He must really delight in them because of all the good things they're doing. But in truth, mature Christians are not doing what is right to get God's delight. They're doing what is right because they have God's delight. There's a huge difference. You have to keep the order straight in the gospel. Now, I said, I think that we love grace theoretically, but we deny it practically. I even think we hate it existentially. And the first reason, again, as review, is because it's so humbling. It leaves absolutely no room for boasting. It just lays us bare before the cross. But the second reason we naturally push against grace is this. If God really gives everything we'd ever truly want in this life and the next, and if we really do nothing to earn it, 
then the only logical, rational, reasonable response is to give him anything he asks for. We don't like grace alone because we have no bargaining chips when it comes to negotiating the rest of our lives. We don't like grace alone because we have no bargaining chips when it comes to negotiating the rest of our lives. Let's look at it in the text. Look at what Paul the Apostle calls himself. Look at what he calls his special apostolic assistant, Timothy. Verse one, Paul and Timothy, the two highest ranking men, arguably, two of the highest ranking men, arguably, in, in the day and age. Servants of King Jesus. Servant, bondservant, slave. A doulos was a man of servile condition who became a slave because he could not provide for himself. And so he sold himself into bond service so that he could live. But in his life, he was totally at the disposal of his master 24-7. In Luke chapter 7, this week in CBR, you'll, you'll read of the Roman centurion, a commander of 83 or 100, depending on which journal article you believe. And the centurion had soldiers and servants at his disposal. And the story is really quite helpful because it shows us what the original audience in Philippi would have thought and known when Paul said, I'm a doulos. It's, it's, it's a snapshot into the Roman mind. The centurion travels to Jesus and he asks him to heal one of his servants. And Jesus says, I'll help you, I'll come, I'll travel with you, let's go and do this. And the centurion says to Jesus, there's no need to travel, just say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion went further and he's talking about Jesus's authority over the illness. And he says, Jesus's authority over the illness is like his authority over his doulos. He says this, I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. I say to another, do this, and he does it. That's the practical definition of a doulos in Roman culture. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, you're slaves. Verse 20, you were bought with a price. The price being the precious blood of Jesus. So in light of that, it's only rational, it's only reasonable, glorify God in your body. Paul says to the church in Philippi, he says to the overseers, you see this, these are the bishops. He says to these guys who have authority over the deacons and he says to the deacons who have authority over the saints and he says to all of them, he says, listen, I'm a doulos and my special assistant Timothy who has authority over you when he visits you, he's a doulos. And if we're all servants, if we're servants, we're all servants. In fact, when you get to chapter two and we get there in a few weeks, we're gonna see Paul telling everyone in the church to be a humble servant like Jesus. He says, Jesus made himself nothing, took on the form of a doulos and became obedient to the point of death. If we really gain everything by doing nothing, the only rational response is to give anything. 
In the book of Romans, for 11 chapters, Paul gives extensive and beautiful detail on the do-nothing, gain-everything realities of the gospel. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he transitions and he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, according to the mercies of God. So he's saying, according to the do-nothing, gain-everything mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a living offering, a dead man walking, And then he says this, most literally in the Greek, this is your rational service. Do nothing, gain everything, give anything. Give the first 10% of my income as the beginning of my sacrificial generosity, leading me to mercy and justice. Okay, because you said, and because I became rich in the poverty of Christ. Keep the marriage bed pure, okay. Because you said and because you died for me and you know what's best for me. Share my faith, share you, proclaim the gospel to my neighbor, neighbor. okay. Because you told me to and because you've promised that my joy will be complete when I do. If I have two pairs of underwear, two tunics, give one away, okay. Because you said to and because you were naked, without tunic on the cross for me. Love my neighbor as well as myself? Okay, because you said to. And because you've loved me as well as yourself, sharing everything with me, starting with the Father's love and delight. Use my authority and my power and my position and my money to serve others and not use others? Okay, because you've told me to. Because this is what you did with your power your righteousness, your position for me. Get up early and retreat to dark, quiet places to read the word instead of staying up late watching Hulu or, 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 or getting up early to get a, a, a head start on the day with stocks and sports and politics. Okay, because you tell me to, but not to earn your delight, but to enjoy your delight. Give up my right to demand fairness, to seek revenge, to withhold forgiveness. Okay, but because Christ took on the cross your revenge and your vengeance for me. Do we get it? Do nothing, gain everything, give anything. Nothing else makes any sense. If you never give anything, the Bible would say you've never believed doing nothing and gaining everything. The more we do nothing and gain everything, the Bible says we will increasingly give anything. And the Bible would say that all three of these make us human, bring us to life, give us joy, and cause us to have a ball in the kingdom of God. So as I go through Philippians, I'm gonna continually refer back to this six-word phrase. But in conclusion, I want us to go back to Naaman in 2 Kings 5 for literally a few seconds. After trying to pay for his cleansing and being told no, he asks this, and Elisha grants him his request. He says, chapter 5, verse 17, if not, speaking about Elisha not receiving the gift, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any other God 
but Yahweh. The point? My life and my future belong to the Lord who gives me everything, even though I did nothing. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for, your, for you. I thank you for your kindness and your grace. I thank you for, man, I, oh man, I thank you for even a sinner like me can be welcomed into the arms of God because of you. I thank you that I feel like today my mind understands this for the first time and this does not get me any more delight from the Father. I thank you that my position has been secure, that the affection of God has been secure, that everything for life and salvation and godliness for me has been given to me before I was ever born in the gospel. God, I thank you for your grace. We need it now. We need it desperately. God, as I look at this church plant becoming a church, I think there's so much for us yet to understand and experience and learn. And your word tells us to go back to the love of Christ, which will compel us to good deeds. Would you give us a holistic and well-rounded faith and belief and relationship with you? Jesus, you have said that if we try and hold on to our life, we will lose it. But if we lose our life for you, we will find it. Would you help us to see that even in sacrifice, we gain? In your name we pray.